0: I'm excited to talk about Section 230 and Title II and what we just saw the central government do with Twitter.
1: Yeah, and maybe I'm not even, unless this, if this happened in the last news cycle, I might not even be aware of what you're talking about. So you want to brief us on that?
0: Yeah, what happened was the government basically created an incentive structure through placing intelligence agents at Twitter
1: through the political speech of Americans. That's what the Twitter file is about. Okay, so we're talking about what's come out through the Twitter files in terms of the kind of the infiltration and co-optation of a platform like Twitter and presumably the other ones as well by ex-FBI agents and things like that, supposedly ex-FBI, things like that.
0: Yeah, I think the op was basically put a bunch of intelligence community guys, so you can get name acted in here at some point, or he has a list of all these people, hundreds of them at Twitter alone. And then what they do is they went out and hired contractors, so a third-party company to create a machine learning system for visibility filtering or visibility boosting or functional. Which is otherwise known as shadow banning. Yes, otherwise known as shadow banning, exactly. And then they created a bridge, technological bridge between those third-party contractors and the election integrity project and NGOs that the government was funding. And so, what would happen is the government would fund Stanford or University of Washington. Actually, there's a $3 million grant that they gave to set up these integrity partnerships. And then they would fill those partnerships with people who are former intelligence community people. And then those people would then come up with the terms for machine learning to decide what was mis and disinformation, which they would then feed to. Their third-party contractors that were hired by other ex-intelligence community people who are working at these companies, which is this is, is absolutely incredible. And for me, the question is: Did this violate the First Amendment of the United
1: States? And if it did, so, how did it violate? Yeah. So my understanding is the First Amendment basically protects citizens from being censored by the government because free speech is something, and that's and but that what we're, what we've been seeing is a number of attempts by the government to do end runs around the first amendment by not being the direct sense of, of citizen speech, but by co-opting other kinds of organizations to strongly hint at. So that's a nice, that's a nice social media platform you have there. It'd be a shame if anything happened to it, or if we had to regulate it much more heavily. So why don't you take our suggestions and self-censor rather vigorously? Is that it? Yeah, I think so. Look, there's, the government can step in at any point and
0: issue what's called an NSL, a national security letter, to a U.S. company. So we're talking about the U.S. government for U.S. companies and say, do this or do that. And, and that's the- for the Patriot Act, right? That they can do that? There are a number of legal structures that are in place that allow them to do this. Like you just imagine that you're a low-level engineer at one of these companies in charge of a system and you get an NSL from the government, can never say anything about it. And then all of a sudden, you are now working on behalf of the government. Now, there is supposed to be an oversight system in place. I don't believe that's what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is something that I think is entirely different. I think it's personally a gray area on law. So basically, is the government permitted to use funds, so the DHS used money, to fund NGOs at U.S. universities, right? so the Election Integrity Project and other Mm -hmm. entities, and then use those NGOs to generate misinformation lists, what is and what is not misinformation lists. And then at the same time, to have ex-government people who are working at companies like Twitter or Facebook to go ahead and hire third-party contractors. So what's very interesting is these were not Twitter employees that were in charge of creating the visibility filtering networks. These were actual third-party contractors with different company names entire And actually, Chris Ruby, In the Ruby files, he uncovered a number of these entities, some of them actually even affiliated with the Clinton Foundation, which I thought was really incredible. They're basically hired by Twitter to create the visibility filtering systems, and then they would take their input data for those systems from the Election Integrity Project. So you could imagine, it's kind of like a game of telephone. The government gives the money to the NGO, the NGO creates the data, the data is then given to a third party and integrated into Twitter or Facebook. Right. And so Twitter and Facebook could say, look, we're just this is something that's not really our core business. And so we've outsourced it to another company. And then that company doesn't really exist. It's a shell corporation. Right. And then then that company could say, Well, we weren't really doing anything. We were just taking lists of misinformation from these NGOs. And so the question becomes like, is that a violation of the First Amendment?
1: And what do we do about it? And of course, we're also are this
0: two thirty hate speech, free speech, short conversation.
1: Yeah, so exactly. And, and obviously I think the whole idea of misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, and hate speech all kind of plays into the larger conversation we're having about Section 230 and what, how do we protect our republic in the largest sense? That's the most important thing to me. Maybe we can talk for a minute about those terms that you mentioned. You mentioned misinformation and disinformation, and there's the third one. The government recently introduced malinformation. What is your take on that, those distinctions between those? Obviously there is some yeah. merits so, that hey, yeah, yeah. information so, can be false or misleading or being promulgated for nefarious purposes, but what's your general take on those things? Yeah.
0: I know a number of the people, unfortunately they are members of our, lo- our community wolves who are on these systems. And so the definitions that they use are disinformation is information that contains falsehoods. So material information that is not true or lies. Misinformation is all around shaping context. So you may omit information and that the omission of a piece, a critical piece of data, end up making the entire statement misinformation. Then malinformation is relatively new. And I think it's just another way to say disinformation. But if you think about it, like in terms of malformed information, it's the same thing where it's you take something and you distort the presentation of it in order to mislead, right? So intent is really important here, and intent, as we know, is very difficult to establish when you're doing a, a, an investigation through the fact. And so, I think it's very dangerous for governments to be in the position of declaring what is a fact and what is not. I think we've seen Western governments, for me, New Zealand saying during the COVID pandemic, that we are the only source of real information was hugely
1: the most problematic thing. Wasn't this part of the main intention of the First Amendment to prevent government from setting itself up as the sole arbiter of truth and let basically the best ideas emerge from the marketplace of ideas rather than a centralized authority?
0: Yes, that's correct. And the question is, do we see a violation here? And this gets further complicated because Twitter is itself a private company. So if we were to say that Twitter is like a newspaper, okay, or like a magazine from a hundred years ago, the question is, if it's producing government lies, is that an example of the government doing an infringement on free? Because really what they're doing is they're just giving a particular story, if you will, to a magazine. They're not limiting somebody's talk. And I think this is where it gets really interesting because now you have to, go back to the spirit of both the First Amendment and Section 230, and I think, I think we should have a conversation about what the Decency Act was, what Section 230 of the Decency Act was for, and then how it has evolved into where it is today. Because I think if you're going to have an intelligible conversation on this topic, you really need to understand, not necessarily in terrible nuance, these things, but you do need to understand the spirit of what these laws are for. So maybe we'll see have some a bit of of background on it.
1: Yeah. The Section 230 was part of what's called the Communications Decency Act, which was part of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. And a lot of the Communications Decency Act was ruled by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional. I think that happened in 1997. But Section 230 itself, part of the Communications Decency Act, was deemed severable and it basically stood in place. And since then, there's been some legal challenges that have validated its constitutionality. But Basically, Section Two Thirty, my understanding is that it limits the liability of of information service providers that publish content created by other entities, whether those are other companies or individuals, or whatever. So, if I post something that is, for example, libels somebody's good name on Twitter, Twitter's not responsible for that. Whereas, if it were the New York Times, the New York Times is considered to be a publisher, and, and Section Two Thirty make no distinction between publisher and platform. We can talk about that later. But if the New York Times publishes libel, then they are in fact liable for that libel. <laughs> so they could be sued or otherwise have to take down or retract or pay civil damages for libeling somebody's good name. Whereas Twitter in, has safe harbor protections of section 230 and doesn't have that problem. And in some ways, this is considered to be one of the things that made the modern internet possible. Some people called the 26 wor- wor- words that made the internet. Um, and, and obviously there's been Laws passed since then, like the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the MCA, that further kind of restrict what, so what uh, information service providers can publish in terms of having to take down things that clearly infringe copyright. There's an in, in established certain procedures. But the general idea is if you run some kind of internet service, you're not liable for what other people put on it. Now, this also gives you the right, the, the Section 230, as you run a platform, you can also take down content that you deem offensive or hate speech or whatever in your sole judgment this gives you a lot of control and so the question now becomes you establish this gray area between having to take down what might be federally illegal content which might be copyright violations or direct incitement to violence things that clearly are protected by the first amendment and other kinds of content which you may just consider in fact the it says yeah so You don't have
0: to take down anything that's a direct incitement of violence as a platform. So for example, if somebody was to get on a phone call, so like, I think it's really important to talk about this because originally all of these ideas came from the telecom networks because there were actual operators that were listening to calls. Yes. And so then the question was, if I am on a call with Wolf and Owen is also, is the operator and I make, and I defame somebody's business to Wolf, does Owen, is Owen liable? Because as a employee of the operator of the telecom service, are they- He's enabled and liable. Right? And so the entire idea is that if I'm AT&T and and i am holding this call, that I'm not personally liable for what third parties claim about other third parties. But those and third generally parties-
1: generally speaking, open providers like telephone companies have always been presumed to not be liable for their content. Exactly. The, that but person. here's yeah. the
0: thing, right? If the government was to say to Owen, i want you to mute the line every time that michael starts talking about a particular set of words is that a violation of the first amendment and i would say that it is because we have an example of a telecom provider and the government is saying okay you cannot say these things and they're having the operator who's sitting on the line doing it and so i think it's very important to talk about the genesis of these ideas and their history because i think there's like an entire Group of people that makes their money by confusing this issue.
1: Yeah, there's two right? like, things that the issue. One is one is that the government is not saying you can't say these things. They're saying we suggest strongly that these things might be tied with Russian propaganda or whatever, or you should be on the lookout for an op that's coming your way. That no, no, the Twitter files
0: <gasps> revealed that the government used specific terms like "my pillow" as signals of disinformation, and then Twitter specifically went after tweets that were with the my pillow and did the shadow banning
1: but the government never injuncted them to use those in terms of its legal force it basically said that these are lists of terms that we have identified as subversive or marking disinformation or whatever and it's up to you what to do about we're not but here it is and they went along with it that's the one thing the other thing is these platforms are being private platforms they have an according to section 230 they can remove orster content that they deem, quote, obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected, as long as they act, quote, in good faith, whatever that means. So these things blur the lines between what is something like the New York Times, which is liable for what it publishes, and <clears throat> what is something like Twitter, which is apparently not liable for anything said on it, or even what it takes down, how it filters the content. And that's what makes things, in my mind, Uh, Very confusing, and then there's the government intervention issue, which is not through legal injunctions. In fact, in Brazil, it recently happened that the government did try to legally injunct a number of global services, including Rumble, including Twitter, and so on. And some of them did follow that injunction within Brazil; others totally ignored it, like Rumble. That's that crosses the line of what happened in Brazil. That, as far as we know, the U.S. government has not crossed, even with the the intelligence or uh, I forgot the term you use. the letters that that uh, the government sends. For some reason, no, those haven't been used. At least nothing leaked about that here. Yeah, I would contend that anybody who plays Section 230 immunity
0: should immediately be considered for classification under Title II of the FCC's Communications Act. And I believe that Twitter is, in fact, a telecom. And in, a, in an analogous situation, the government does not have the right or the ability to pull this BS with the NGOs. And maybe that's a strong point, and maybe that needs to go to legislature. So, what what is I CK, think the gray area, of uh, the
1: FCC, the Telecommunications Act, say in, just, in this sense? Just basically,
0: it defines how the government treats common carriers. Okay, which would be telecoms, and it's like so, what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. And my contention is that. Twitter, because they're claiming Section 230 immunity, is saying, no, no, we're not the New York Times. It's okay. You're not the New York Times, but are you AT&T? I think there's a specific legal gray area here, and people make millions and millions of dollars arguing on both sides, like divorce attorneys, where they just try to steal all the money. And I think Congress needs to make an act. And I, I, candidly, I believe that if you have more than 40% of the market share for a particular service, then you, in fact, should be subject to these common carrier rules i think right. to make so it really let's simple
1: let's introduce another distinction because there's the distinction whether or not a a company say twitter in this case is a platform like at and or a publisher like the new york times section 230 itself makes no such distinction and as anybody who actually is for leaving 230 intact just as it is would point out 230 doesn't make that distinction so you can't make that distinction in law uh people like Me, and I think yourself probably as well, who believe that these things should be reformed may agree with that in principle, but say, yeah, this is why we need to rewrite or amend Section 230, maybe not repeal it entirely because some of the protections it offers are important, but that amending it and to deal with some of these emergent issues that have come from it, because I think it has had a lot of good effects uh, in terms of not chilling the business environment around speech. But it's also had some bad effects in that it's made these dominant players arbiters of what is true and that's really is not their proper role in in my opinion at least uh, either in business or in culture
0: yeah i think we're in complete agreement which is why i get back to what is the spirit of these laws in the first place because they were written before twitter existed and the other social media networks as we know them and understand them today and then like the first segment section 230 even the most recent And yes there have been some court cases to try and carve some things out. Okay. It's way windier over here.
1: The weather is really windy outside here in Las Vegas as well. It's oh, that's like, hilarious. It's, it's been snowing today. Where I, where oh, I am. God. So it's crazy. Well, it's a beautiful day here in San Francisco. As I look at the Bay bridge, what I was
0: going to say was, I think that that's why I think having these conversations about the spirit of these things is so important because I don't believe that it's appropriate for the government to basically through third parties create what is and what is not acceptable political speech. And that's functionally what I think, what I believe they've done. I don't think that you should allow people to go into private business within 10 years of being in the government. That's number one. That's the first change that I would make. And the second change I would make is if you claim Section 230 immunity, which is fine from my perspective and good, then it should trigger a question of, okay, are you a common carrier? Are you potentially subject to Title II? And the question there is, does 40% or more of the use in a particular communications channel happen on your network. And if so, then you are.
1: Yeah. And I also want to open this up to other people who are listeners right now. If you want to be a speaker, if you wanted to either. Generally, I agree with you, Michael, that we need to, in the spirit that you're describing of First Amendment and so on, and government not interfering in speech, which is what First Amendment is about, we need to, the protections that 230 affords should have um, a quid pro quo attached to them, which it doesn't currently. And I think that's the big problem. But if anybody else would like to speak on this, pro or con, whatever, I'd love to hear you suggestions. Yeah, people should come up. We didn't do
0: that last time, and that was a huge mistake. So if people want to ask a question about this or anything else, we should have that. But we should definitely try to get people up here if they want to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And even if you want to agree with everything we say, please contribute. Please please state your own feelings. My wife has been actually put in Facebook jail like four times in the past two years. For completely innocent things she said that the algorithm had flagged and which basically in her case, since she also uses Facebook for business, cuts her off. She can't actually do her regular social media posting for some clients she works with and some of that because she's in Facebook. And now Facebook can regulate its own content, but you also have to ask how many of these things are being pushed behind the scenes by government. If what's happening with Facebook is also what's happening with Twitter, then it's by inference, it's got to be a lot. And uh, this thing this idea that our speech is not free on any of these platforms, that these are not common carriers, that these are in fact publishers and we are essentially writing for them. And then they editorialize so sometimes within, within seconds of posting, years and before we post even preventing us from posting certain things, even in DMs, this happened during the Hunter Biden laptop thing is you couldn't even DM the URL of the, I think it was Washington post article on the Hunter Biden laptop to somebody else. So we're being censored. Um, pre-censored, post-censored and so on by our editor and and that treats us as writers. So in in, in that case, I agree. I don't think section Two Thirty protections should retain. That's interesting. That's like a whole
0: other set of ideas.
1: Yeah, obviously this, you know, there's a lot of idea creep here, but the, um, I'm just going through the, there's both the Wikipedia article. I did, by the way, in, shared in the uh, in the space itself, right now, it's the actual text of section 230, if anybody wants to read it. I always encourage going back to the source, reading these things for yourself. Obviously, it's kind of federal legalese, so it might not be completely self-explanatory. Um, tools like Wikipedia might help some with that. But again, using Wikipedia as a primary source is not a great idea because it's heavy, edi- heavily edi- uh, edited editorialized. So I don't recommend that to get a complete understanding of things. Michael, you were saying that one of the main things you would change is that you would make the, the protections of 230 only apply to companies that basically, I'm sorry, what was the condition you said? <laughs> my, 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 my. Yeah, I think if you claim 230 immunity, you say, look, I'm not
0: responsible for what people using my service say, then I think that automatically triggers a review by the FCC for whether or not you should also be regulated as a title to common carrier. And the threshold for regulation is: do, th- does the company or entity control more than forty percent of communication on a particular?
2: So, right? how, so you we, could say, oh,
0: is Twitter? Does Twitter have any competitors? Facebook is uh-huh. a competitor. So does Twitter control over forty percent? And that's an interesting question. I think that would be the kind of court case that should be litigated. But I don't personally believe that Twitter is is basically a common carrier."
1: Right. So obviously some kind of metric about when an organization might be subject to governmental regulation is I think a good question. Again, I'm not a huge fan of government regulation, but I think we're accepting that as a a priori in this conversation that, and I'm not sure comparing Twitter to say Facebook in terms of market share is is doable, actually, because they have different kinds of metrics, maybe numbers of users or revenue or some kind of other metric of actual independent size separate from market share might be a good idea because the market tends to increase as new players come in and become established. Small players that don't actually, couldn't be considered to be major influencers in the space, I think obviously wouldn't come under government scrutiny, but at some point, yeah, I think there, there should be some kind of government scrutiny. Because in my mind, again, it's quid tro quo, if Section 230 didn't exist, then the existing law would make everybody liable for everything that you publish. And Section 230 carves out certain provisions, but it doesn't provide any kind of obligation on the part of those claiming its protections. And that's, I think, its, its chief downfall is it doesn't have a quid pro quo in it. It doesn't say, okay, yeah, you can claim Section 230, but in return, you have to do these particular things, including having certain kinds of guarantees of neutrality and accessibility and things like that, because we're going to protect you. Now you have to serve the public. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes sense to me. I think it's just like arguments at this point
0: about what the specifics are. We're in a small enough space that you and I mostly agree. I agree with you. I don't really like the government regulating these things. But on the other hand, I don't think it's appropriate what has occurred at Twitter that we have seen with the Twitter files. And my assumption is that it's happening with the other social media networks as well. And what is in fact supposed to be the response, right? Like how are we supposed to form up and distribute this information if the government's able to say, anybody who says that the Constitution has been violated is an extremist. Like, right. Well, the FBI just circulate that memo? And then we, yeah, get to, I, we get to basically be labeled an extremist by the Election Integrity Project. And
1: therefore, then we are visibility de Yes. Yeah, and we've also had situations like recently with Joel Roth, the former head of trust and safety at Twitter, going in front of Congress and claiming that free speech stifles free speech. Uh, I've seen some hilarious memes along these lines. But the basic reasoning is that if you have, if you allow unbridled free speech, then you invite in hate speech, quote unquote, which we can talk about, that then chills the environment for anybody else to speak up, which I don't see how that's possibly true because the classical, uh, absolutely liberal point of view is that the only response to hate speech is more speech. And so that if you see somebody acting in a hateful way, you speak up and you act out against that with your own speech and the public decides. But Joel Roth's assertion was that, oh, if we allow anybody to say anything, then this will cause fewer people to say anything. And yeah, I'm just, that just seems like to be a very novel idea and goes against the, everything I've understood about free speech growing up, basically.
0: I hey, Owen has a question. Huh, yeah. So go ahead,
2: Owen. Yeah, thanks. My question is, how do you think this applies or should apply to search engines? It's not quite the same thing because it's not a social media, but still you have websites that are posting all sorts of information. Much of it is probably objectionable to a lot of people and places like Google. Obviously Google has the most market share is basically a monopoly on search. They can choose not to include things in their index. And they've done that. I think it was shown that they basically blackholed Breitbart, for example, just all the search traffic went to zero and that is a lot like visibility filtering or whatever you want to call it. They basically just don't include that information. Are they subject to Section 230 as well, or
1: should they be? That's a really good question. I don't know because obviously Section 230 regulates how information service providers, which Google would be an information service provider, is protected from the liability of anything that's provided by third parties. Of course, that's what search engines do. They tell you what's out there, and they go out there, they scrape it, they can, they index it, you search their index. And then, and then of course, I think if section 230 would apply, they can remove information they consider obscene, will disavious, whatever, below Breitbart. And then as far as you know, they don't exist because you go out there, you search Google for something, Breitbart never comes up. And so it doesn't exist and is liable a mission because you're never told that it existed. So if you didn't know about Breitbart, you would never learn about Breitbart. And so this is a huge matter of influence. And so in what sense is, so just based on talking it through out loud just now, I'd say that, yeah, the same thing applies. If you have a dominant market share of something like a search and you are deliberately shadow manning certain kinds of sites that are out there, you may, you would probably, I think under reform 230 be required to produce that information because it's out there. And so you're a, you're a neutral platform and not a public. And again, i for people who are adamant that section 230 is wonderful, as is, shouldn't be touched. The whole distinction between platform and publisher is i guess some kind of subversive thing to even say there ought to be a distinction but i think there makes there's a lot of reasons to distinguish between platform and publisher i think Uh, it gets back to
0: i don't actually think it's a 230 issue with google i think it's a title two issue again and the way that i think about it is that google has used its monopoly to create highways to information from server to server right from client to server and so the question is are they able to not surface results. You can say, well, they're a third party. like They shouldn't have to link to things that they disagree with. And then on the other side, it's like, okay, but then we shouldn't grant them a de facto monopoly, which gets to our conversation last week about how through data centers, transit, enterprise licensing agreements, and their relationship with open source, from my perspective, they have created a monopoly, right? 93% market share in search. And they pay, I think, something on the order of $15 billion a year to Apple and others for customer acquisition to be the default mm-hmm. search engine on Safari, yep, that seems like a monopolist kind of behavior. And if we're not going to regulate them under any trust, then again, it gets back to what legal framework do you go after? Because technically, Google is not a carrier. Technically, they are actually with their ISP, but that, is, that would be a very difficult case to prove, I think, that Google was. It would be interesting, actually, if as an ISP, Google wouldn't transit Breitbart's data because then you could go after them. I just don't know how they right. would actually
1: believe that as an IIP as such. I don't think they they can or would restrict that. That would be that would be crossing a line. But as a information provider, not conveyor, then yeah, that's where I think our most of our conversations are around and yeah, where I think they've clearly crossed that line. Yeah. And I, I, again, what's the difference between a provider and a purveyor? And again, presumably some kind of editorial control because a conveyor, sorry, is probably a better term, a, a content neutral platform like the phone system. Yeah. Yeah. The government can tap your wires, but they're not just going to interdict speech, even if it's considered to be offending of some of some way. Um, if it's illegal or subversive in some way, then they have various kinds of ways of figuring out who you are. And if you're about to committing a crime of interdicting that. But short from that, they don't interfere in private conversations. Conversations on Twitter, in many ways, have that same kind of aspect of a private conversation. The government should keep its nose out of it, except for maybe things where there's obviously things that are subversive or seditious. But again, that line gets crossed as well in terms of the government redefining what is subversive, what is seditious, and basically attempting to influence things that haven't risen to the level of any crime. And, And yeah, and trying to basically work with major providers, Google and Twitter are two of the most. Celebrate celebrate ones right now to, to limit what people can say. And this doesn't seem to apply to just, for example, what party is in power in government right now. A lot of this seems to be coming from the administrative state, what called to call the deep state, which is enforces the regulations, decides what regulations will get enforced, organizations like the FBI that that seem to want to enforce certain kinds of ideologies in the name of Homeland Security that may have nothing to do with what the who's in power in Congress or who's in power in the Oval Office. They're doing their own thing. And it seems to me that what we're seeing with, with the Twitter files is is a very clear signal that these things need to be called to heal. But who's going to do it? Who's watching the watches right now? Certainly not the Biden administration, because it's working in their favor at the moment. Yeah, I think that's
0: a whole other can of worms. And I think it's a good argument for the default open stance that I think you and I vector towards. It's just that default open is we consider oh it's not illegal in the u.s but it's illegal in brazil it's a u.s company so they what do they do in terms of brazil you know, it's just it's really not it was really not good so then you're right, like oh no, everyone should just use strong encryption and pgp and then we got this all settled right
1: yep yeah i definitely recommend glenn greenwald the the journalist has a show on rumble every day called system update and i recommend it where he's basically he actually lives in brazil and even though he's he's a u.s expatriate so he has a good insight to comment on this. And basically a judge in Brazil issued private letters to a number of big tech companies, including Twitter, banning, insisting that within 24 hours they ban a select list of, of, of people they deemed to be or whatever to the current leadership in Brazil. And Twitter under Elon Musk did comply, but only within Brazil. So you cannot access that if you're accessing more than Brazil IP addresses, you cannot access these accounts. You can still access them elsewhere. That's one way of splitting the baby. People like Rumble basically just said, screw you, you know, we're an American company. We're not beholden to your laws. We're not going to censor this in any way. And big tech companies who want to be global entities also do have to thread this needle of dealing with, obviously, First Amendment's great. The U.S. is the only country that has free speech enshrined like that. Not the U.K., nowhere else, basically has that level of protection for free speech. And most countries that don't have that level of protection think that's a good thing. I don't think it's a good thing, ultimately. And I think this is one of things that does make the United States exceptional is, is the First Amendment. Figure out how to thread this needle, even apart from 230, I think is hugely important. Yes, yeah, so if anyone would like to speak, just please raise your hand or request to be a speaker. And I'm happy to bring you yeah, up. I'd love think, to hear what you have to so, say. I think the problem
0: with what you just said is that with cryptography, everyone becomes basically a bank. So how are you supposed to enforce any kind of institutional bank
1: regulations? I,
0: honestly, the more I think about this issue, the more I think it becomes obvious to me that we're, there's some path dependency. In our regulatory <laughs> frameworks, it's very clear at this point that they're not functioning. It's a complete gridlock, and then the question is like, okay, how are we supposed to move forward? There's a huge argument. We just keep going on as we are,
1: but this is this problem is only going to get worse. Well, I think that. And let me hear what Owen has to say, then I'll respond on my own. Uh,
2: my question is a little bit different. I think to me, one of the aspects that makes this maybe difficult or different is from a traditional common carrier scenario. Is the, the difference between a private conversation and a public? If you look at a traditional phone carrier, for example, everybody who's communicating opted into that conversation, right? And if if I publish a newsletter or a magazine, that goes to the people who subscribe to that magazine. So they've decided they want that information. And to me, it's a little bit different when you look at social media, where it's, you're not just publishing information to the people who are following you. It's also being potentially pushed or promoted or visible, at least to other people that didn't necessarily ask for it. And I think that's some of the arguments that these social media companies have made: is that we're not preventing people from saying things; we're just preventing other people from seeing them that might not want to. So it does seem like a little bit of a different nuance there: that it's not so much about preventing speech as it is preventing people from
1: hearing the speech. Yeah, there's the uh, there's the positive censorship where we shut you down, and there's the negative censorship of we're in the shadow ban and not promote you. You know what is allowed to trend is also a form of censorship as far as i'm concerned because again if you were completely neutral then trending would basically be a perfectly numerical metric based on what people are promoting now then anytime you what what is the statement michael i'm sure you know it Any, anytime a metric becomes a target it ceases to be a metric yeah uh, yeah there's you know, the obviously. well-known anonymous law on that i think The problem
0: with the newsletter argument, Owen, is that I don't have the ability to opt out of the election integrity project's machine learning bullshit. If they gave me the option to turn off that misinformation filter, sure, they could make that argument. But absent them doing that, no, does not fly.
1: Yeah, and to my your point, Mike, before we before Owen spoke, are we screwed? I would say, yeah, maybe in some senses we are. I'm an optimist. And so I'd like to think that because technologies are evolving so rapidly right now, one of the most likely scenarios is that other disruptive technologies are going to continue to emerge that that disrupt or make less possible the kinds of corruption we're seeing. Obviously, decentralized technologies, the, the edges may still be co-opted by, the, by these existing power structures. For example, like cryptocurrency, the banking regu- regulation system is regulating how Fiat currency gets turned into crypto and vice versa. Um, that's to be expected, but cryptocurrency still exists and it still has value. And it's completely independent of the fiat currency system. And, and, and that's emerging. I mean, that's a separate conversation. But the point is um, disruptive technologies will continue to emerge, even around speech. Things that we take for granted now, like Twitter. Twitter has always existed. Twitter will always exist. Facebook has always existed. It will always exist. Turn out not to be true within 10 or 20 years. I'm 10 blocks
0: away from Western Union, and they still deliver as many telegrams today as they did in the 1870s. So I don't agree with that statement at all. And the other thing is I
1: don't want to wait my entire life
0: for a competitor to.
1: It's interesting because you could look at any number of things that still exist, but and may in in some sense, but not have scaled. Sure. Okay. Many telegrams are sent, but is that what people think of when they think of Western Union now? Mostly they think of sending money. It's pivoted. So yeah, you I guess you could send a telegram. But who does that? Nobody. IBM still exists; it still has purpose. Microsoft still exists and is still dominant in a certain areas. But it has Apple it has Mac OS eaten Microsoft's lunch? No. But it has its own market. So these things emerge. It's like I say: when I was a kid, I loved electronic music. I still love electronic music. But when I was a kid, I was under the idea that oh, now we have electronic instruments; they're going to replace acoustic instruments. And then I came to realize later: no, they coexist. These things will continue to coexist, and people who want to use them have, have will have the ability to use them. And and so. I'm not saying that anything old stops existing. I'm saying that it learns its kind of rightful place in the order of things. And the things we take for granted now as dominant won't necessarily always be dominant. Who remembers MySpace? A lot of people, but who uses it? Nobody. Yeah, there's going to be things around in the future that people say, oh yeah, that used to be the big thing, but now it's not. That's the pattern that repeats itself over and over again. You saying, well, you disagree with me on the basis the Western Units do this. I'm going to say, sure, so it still exists. So what?
0: Yes, but Western Union is also doesn't have a monopoly over their transit lines,
1: which Google and Twitter and these guys do. But do they? Because they are dominant. I will definitely agree with you. Monopoly is a much different kind of thing. And if there's one thing we know about trying to corner markets, trying to be dominant in a particular market is that creates a vacuum of competition and encourages disruptive technologies to emerge. In a free market, trying to corner a market basically, if you try to legally, at least the black markets, you can try to do it in the free market. Then it leads to a disruptive competitor. Before we're getting down to the about ten minute mark, of course, if anybody else wants to speak, please just raise your hand. And I want to mention that my podcast, the Beware of Wolf podcast, which is youtubecom slash podcast. I've been republishing these conversations. There's now I think three or four of them up. This one will go up in a few days. You don't have to find the Twitter space, and they're all going. To, they're all going to be chapter, chapterized as well because Michael and I have been having these pretty wide ranging conversations. I encourage you to follow me there. And my thing basically is about helping people think better, not teaching people what to think but teach people how to think do you want to give your own little mini introduction mike yeah i first of all i appreciate everybody coming here i think this is a very difficult
0: topic what is evil speech what is bad speech what should we do about it i don't think there's any like really particularly good way to think about it other than i wish i have a set of cultural beliefs that i think are consistent with the american founding but maybe they aren't and so that's what i'm for And then in terms of why do I do this info diet stuff, I see a lot of people who are overwhelmed with information. They don't really know how to parse what they're reading or contextualize it in their own lives to take forward action and achieve their mission and goals. And so a lot of the work that I do, including having these conversations, is just try to figure out how do we take a position on these things? How do we integrate them into our frame of thinking? What, like to Wolf's point, what ways of thinking are available to us? Not necessarily, hey, this is the solution. You should take it. But. This is the process that I use to get to the solution or get some to understand and then help people develop those models for themselves so they can make more efficient decisions. And of course, you can just follow me on Twitter. I have products and courses and stuff that are available from time to time, but I don't have any and I'm not interested in doing the course anytime soon. And from a product perspective, maybe I'll release like a twenty seven dollar one day info detox course here in a couple months. But
1: Otherwise, yeah, very low touch. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that coming out. I think you have some great things to say and some great things that people should generally learn. I think you and I primarily share the value that we want people to think better, think for themselves, and in the belief that's what upholds a strong world, a strong society. And the more that people exceed that, that either never learn to think, never learn to make sense of the world and so on, the more they become passive tools of existing power structures and that that's ultimately weakens society. Would you agree? Honestly, I believe so. Oh. Yeah. Owen, did you want to say something?
2: Yeah, on the topic of hate speech, I think one of the other arguments I've heard a lot of people make about the need of shadow banning or censorship is that the platforms would potentially become a cesspool if it wasn't done. If you imagine if they were deemed a common carrier and they weren't allowed to censor anything, then you might see every reply thread with trolls just putting the N-word or telling everyone to kill themselves or other things that are deemed hate speech, but I guess my question is if they were deemed a common carrier, how would you prevent the platform from becoming a cesspool or someplace, something that just nobody wanted to use because it was just full of speech they didn't want to see? Yeah, Yeah. I think that's a great question.
0: Do you want to to talk about that? Yeah, I was just going to say that's a
2: 4chan problem and I don't really
0: believe the priors because Twitter is going to try and make money and they're going to try and have advertising. So it could be like, Hey, if you want to pay $20 a month to Watch all the troll stuff because we can't advertise against it. You're free to do. Otherwise, you're going to have to have some level of visibility filtering in place. And then it's just a matter of which one that you choose. And then you can algorithmically prove by being able to audit on GitHub. And I think this is what Elon is moving towards so that I can actually see what is the machine learning that they're using in the algorithm. And the value of Twitter as the network isn't diminished by publishing these things because you can't just make Twitter tomorrow, right? They tried this with Mastodon. They tried it with a bunch of other ones. So I, I don't actually believe in the prior that if you were to open everything, default open on Twitter, that it would actually turn into a cesspool and everybody would leave. I think that's, a, that's like a red herring in order to justify shadowy security through obscurity rather than security through good practice. Personally, I think that um, if there's a profit incentive, which there is, then you can create an open system. That allows people to opt into their
1: level of filter. So you talk about the hate speech issue from my own perspective, from own. 4chan is you'll hear people deride it as a cesspool of, of hate speech and so on. And there's a bunch of stuff there that attempts to be offensive. That's one of the things that, that a lot of 4chaners revel in is their right to be able to say anything they want uh, anonymously. And at the same time, it's existed all these years. It's clearly made money for its owners and under those rules. So there's definitely something that supports that. Is it just degeneracy and so on? No, I've seen some good things come out of 4chan. Certainly a lot of very pithy memes, uh, sometimes certain political actions. Some I agree with, some I don't. And I've seen also seen a lot of uh, trolling and coming out with it that, I, that I don't like. So it's definitely a mixed bag, but it's all free speech is a mixed bag. On Twitter and other channels that want to be more more kind of mainstream, there, it, there are things that they can do. I've got a blue check mark by my name now because I'm paying my eight bucks a month, and presumably you can say that. Okay, I've been reviewed, and I've whatever algorithm or person reviewed me basically said I'm not trying to obviously scam people with my name. Same thing with Michael here, and whether or not you choose to get a blue check mark, that's up to you. You don't want the service is available, whether or not. But if you're talking to somebody without a blue check mark uh, that is saying outrageous things or things you don't agree with, ever should you believe them? You should take their words for what they're worth. But if you, but they, you can at least say that if a person is acting anonymously on Twitter, they have less incentive to act in good faith. Whereas if they're not acting anonymously, if they do have that blue check mark, which now means something, I think, better than it used to, because it doesn't mean you're politically blessed; it just means you're paying your eight bucks a month to be verified. Then you at least have some reasonably that there's some skin in the game. I have some skin in the game. My class has some skin in the game. But anonymous cowards, as they were called on Slashdot for forever, basically, you can take them at their word, but you don't have to think that they have a reputation they're trying to pull. They could be anybody. And I think that's one huge check on the kind of just unbridled hate speech. Other than that, if people want to come in and post the N word over and over again, you can block them. And I suggest people have a very itchy block figure. I've suggested that I, I be, when I read Twitter, if somebody, my, my metric is if somebody's wasted my time with their tweet, I block them. I don't care. It could be the N word. It could be something else. It could be something stupid. Block you. Just because I, if you wasted my time by letting, by making me read something, whether I'm offended or not, if, then the chances are anything else you post will also waste my time. So you're blocked. So I I think, again, if I think if everybody just took responsibility to block what they didn't want to see, then a lot of the need to have these kind of very central algorithmic human regulatory kind of mechanisms would actually go away. Yep, that's, I think we should wrap it up. Yeah. So thank you very much, Michael. Thank you very much for attending. We had a pretty good attendance this time. And like I said, this will obviously be up on Twitter right now and on my YouTube channel, the Bewareful podcast in a couple of days. So thanks everybody for coming and enjoy your conference, Michael.